Wasn't expecting to be back with you guys so soon, uh, but I'm very glad to be here and to be able to open God's Word to you. Uh, We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 23 today as we continue in our worship, so let me invite you to open there to God's Word. Um, I actually prepared this sermon to preach in Cambodia last month. Uh, The MTW missionaries there asked me to come and do a conference for Cambodian Presbyterian pastors and their wives, and they asked me to do a conference on the gospel and friendship. And so we did a three-day conference on the gospel and friendship And uh, this was one of the sermons I used there. And then I had a chance to preach it in India uh, at the church I helped plant there. We did an all-day conference. And uh, this is one of the passages that was really helpful, I think, to folks there. And as I was talking to Paul about what would be helpful to to preach this coming Sunday, he said, we haven't heard from a while from the the Old Testament, kind of the Judges through 2 Kings area. And 1 Samuel 23, this was the first thing that popped into my mind, thinking this might be helpful for you. Uh, Thinking about friendship and how the gospel creates and sustains and why friendships are so important as followers of Jesus and how we can cultivate that. And so I pray that you'll find this useful today. I want to invite you to stand as I read God's word from 1 Samuel 23. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I want you to notice one thing and look for one thing as I read. I want you to notice the word hand and how many times and how the word hand is used as I read this passage. So hear the word of the Lord. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy this city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has said? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul Saul had come out to seek his life, 
David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all that your hearts desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his footing is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. My friends, I assure you that though the grass wither and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever, and what you've just heard is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Let me pray for us as we continue on thinking about this text. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this portion of your word. All of your word is inspired by you and profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we come with great expectation to this text, asking that as we meditate for a few minutes on this text, that your Holy Spirit would open this text to us, that your Holy Spirit would give us the eyes of faith to see, first of all, your Son, Jesus Christ, the great friend of sinners, and to find our all and our hope in Him, and then in Him to move towards one another and the type of friendship that we see demonstrated in this text between Jonathan and David. Lord, we just confess our absolute need for you as we sit under your word today. We confess that our hearts are, are slow to feel, our minds are often dull. Lord, some of us are just physically tired. Lord, please overcome everything that would cause us to not hear your word and respond with faith and new obedience. Work by the power of your spirit, we beg you, in Jesus' mighty and matchless name, amen. So this last Wednesday night, I took my wife out for Valentine's. I went to a nice Indian restaurant, had dinner, and went to see a movie. And in that movie, I saw kind of a stock scene that you've probably seen dozens of times, maybe more than 100 times in movies and television shows. Someone falls off the side of something, a cliff, maybe a building, 
And you know how it goes. They, they grasp on with one or two hands. If it's off the side of a cliff, they're maybe hanging on to a rock that's protruding from the cliff, maybe a tree branch, and they're, they're just hanging on. The particular movie I was watching, it was a metal beam on the top of this building, and this young teenage girl was holding on, looking like she's going to fall at any minute. Oftentimes in those movies or in those television shows, just as it seems the grip is about to slip and they're about to plunge to serious injury or most likely death, what happens? Someone reaches down with a hand and they pull them up to safety. A helping hand at the right moment delivers them from certain peril. We often speak when someone's in need of giving them a helping hand, providing a meal when someone's sick, providing a ride when their car breaks down, providing help with rent that month if they're struggling. There are many times in our life as needy creatures that we need a helping hand from others to help with our physical needs. No one gets to a place in their life where they don't need others. And yet it's always true that we always need a helping hand spiritually. There are moments in our life where it is very apparent to us, where we feel it keenly, and we need the helping hand of a Christian friend And even when we don't feel it, even when there's not disaster or tragedy or deep struggle with sin that we're aware of, there's a reality that we cannot follow Christ in isolation, and we need vital friendships in the body of Christ to help us faithfully follow Jesus, to hold fast to the faith, to continue to seek to live a life that pleases Him and honors Him. Christian friends can be one of God's greatest gifts for His people. If you're married, your spouse should be your best friend. It should be something you're cultivating, something you're seeking to enjoy. That is often how God provides one of our deepest needs for friendship in the context of marriage. But even if you're married, you still need someone of the same gender, another friend in the faith that can encourage you to help you love your spouse and and help you in other ways maybe that your spouse can't. All of us, married, single, We need vital relationships with others in the body of Christ, both within our spouse relationship and without. And yet what I find increasingly wherever I go, and as I preach this in Cambodia and India, and I spoke to Americans there as well, I find that people increasingly are lonely. We live in a supposedly more connected world where we can connect to people on social media all across the world, and yet sometimes that becomes a substitute for real friendship. And and though we have more availability to connect with other people in the world, though we may have people around us, though we may even be married and have a spouse, I find that many believers are genuinely lonely, and we need friendship. We need a growing friendship in our marriage. We need a growing friendship with others around us. And I believe that God can use this text to help us to see the importance of Christian friendship and also the means to cultivate that, to grow in that, to seek our Lord that we might have deeper friendships both within marriage and outside of marriage that will result in greater spiritual health and greater honoring God with our lives. And so I want to spend some time this morning in 1 Samuel 23 talking about the helping hand of a Christian friend. The helping hand of a Christian friend. And I want to draw out three things from our text. I'm not sure if the, they're up there. The, they're not. Uh, the outline points are there. Each outline point starts with that, the helping hand of a Christian friend. So if you're taking notes, you could just write that. The helping hand of a Christian friend, ellipses first point is sent by God. The helping hand of a Christian friend, there they are, is sent by God. 
Second point, the helping hand of a Christian friend seeks the grieving. The helping hand of a Christian friend seeks the grieving. And then thirdly, we'll see how the helping hand of a Christian friend sustains with the gospel. The helping hand of a Christian friend sustains with the gospel. Let's dive into our first point. The helping hand of a Christian friend is sent by God. Now, you may have noticed that one of the major themes of this passage is the word hand. And it's really a question, is the hand of man more powerful or is the hand of God more powerful? Repeatedly, this word hand, I I saw our dear sister here counting as we went along, and I'm not sure if any of you were counting as you went along, but by my count, there's at least eight references to the word hand. Nine. Nine, okay, I was wrong. Thank you for correcting that. Now, Hebrew narrative by nature is very subtle, and this is written in Hebrew originally. And Hebrew narrative often makes its point through repetition, subtlety. It's almost like dry humor. You have to pay a lot of attention. And here, there's an obvious repetition of the word hand to make a point. And it's really coming again back to the fore. Is the hand of God for his people more powerful? Or is the hand of those who oppose God and his plan more powerful? You may remember that in this part of the narrative of the Old Testament, David has been anointed as the new king to replace uh, Saul, who was rejected by God because of his disobedience and lack of faith. But Saul wasn't just handing the kingship over. In his wickedness and his rebellion against God, he went to smite David and pursued him, as we saw in our text, over and over, day after day, wanting to kill David so that he could continue to reign, so that he could pass on the kingship to his son Jonathan. And God is protecting David, but it's looking bleak from a human perspective. And David is having to wrestle with, is the hand of God stronger than the hand of Saul? Let me just point out one point of that contrast. Look at verse 12 of our text. Then was David asked of the Lord, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? Hand being a metaphor for power, for control, authority over. The question is, will God deliver him into his hand? Is the hand of Saul greater than the hand of God? We see in verse 14, at the end of that, it says, Saul sought him every day. I mean, you think about all the duties that a king would have, and yet he's so laser-focused on going after David that he's abdicating everything else. He's, I'm just going to kill this upstart. I'm going to take him out. But notice what the end of verse 14 gloriously says. God did not give him into his hand. The hand of God was more powerful. Or look at the end of our text in verse 26 through 28, when perhaps it looks the bleakest. There's a moment in verse 26 where it says that Saul's on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David to capture them. I mean, from a human perspective, Saul's thinking, this is finally it. And perhaps David, maybe struggling with unbelief, says, is this going to be it? Is he finally going to get me? Is the power of the Lord going to fail this time? Yes, he's been faithful in the past, but will he be faithful in this moment? Is the hand of God stronger than the hand of Saul, this great king? But notice what happens, verse 27. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned for pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. 
Now, friends, was that chance? Good Presbyterians who love and delight in the sovereignty and the providence of God, was that mere chance that the Philistines just happened to raid at just the time that Saul was about to kill the anointed? We know the answer to that. It was the invisible hand of providence, the strong hand of the Redeemer of Israel, the God who had called David to be his king through whom he would send his Messiah. And the invisible hand of God was stronger than the hand of man. Now, we're tempted to think all the time that what we see with our eyes is the greatest reality. Those who oppose God and his ways, they seem so much stronger at times than God. It seems that the hand of man is much stronger, and it really takes getting into God's Word, seeing the self-revelation of the triune God, seeing His promises, seeing His ways, seeing His sovereignty, seeing His promises, so that the eyes of faith can look and see and be renewed in the promise that the hand of God for His people is stronger than the hand of men. Now, David was able to see God's hand for him. We see it many times in this passage in physical deliverance, physical relief, the invisible hand of God to literally protect David's physical life. But what I want to focus on most in this time is how God also cared for David's spiritual life, for how God's hand towards David was seen not only in these physical deliverances, but in giving him a vital Christian friend in Jonathan, who could remind him and strengthen his faith in his God. Note verse 16. Look at verse 16. The text says, and Jonathan, and notice the phrase that comes after this, Saul's son rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. If you've been reading 1 Samuel to this point, the reader already knows that Jonathan is Saul's son. This is not new information. It's been repeated over and over again. So when the author does this, it's a subtle reminder of who Jonathan is. He's Saul's son. Why does the author mention that? The one who stood most to profit from David's death was Saul's son, Jonathan. The greatest enemy of David was Saul. And the greatest friend, ironically, of David was Saul's son. What a reminder that God can work apart from means, using means, but he often delivers us and helps us where we would least expect it. He doesn't always work in the ways that we would expect, but his hand is for his people, and ironically, he raises up Jonathan's or David's best friend and the very son of his worst enemy. Now, Jonathan profited much by David's death. Jonathan would have been the king to follow his father, humanly speaking, if David was not around. From a human perspective, Jonathan had every reason, even if he didn't actively oppose David, but to sit back and say, maybe not saying it to anybody, but I hope my dad gets him, because I'll get the throne. Many of us would have thought that, probably. But Jonathan is a remarkable believer in the true God of Israel and the Redeemer of Israel. He believed in God's word. He submitted to God's plan. Look at verse 17. He says to David, you shall be king over Israel. Humanly speaking, he was supposed to be king of Israel, but he submits to God's plan. He submits to God's plan to replace his father and him through David. Jonathan was able to look past his physical eyes and to see the hand of God and to see the promise of God and to gladly submit to that. He's really quite a remarkable figure, one of the more remarkable figures in the Bible. 
Jonathan's heart was knit to David from the moment that David defeated Goliath. I want us to look back and see why. Turn back to 1 Samuel 14. I want to give you some insight into the spiritual dynamic in, in Jonathan's life and why he was so drawn to David. Look at 1 Samuel 14, 6. This is when Israel is fighting against the Philistines, and this is before David and Goliath. That's not until chapter 17. 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I mean, what a remarkable faith in the Redeemer of Israel. He and his armor bearer, they go out and they defeat 20-something people all by themselves. Not because of bravado, not because of looking to himself. His faith was not in himself, but in the Redeemer of Israel. And he knows that God, if God so pleases, can use just one or two people against many. A really remarkable faith in Jonathan's respect. In fact, when I read that and I see that, it's surprising to me that when Goliath comes out and mocks the armies of Israel, that Jonathan doesn't step up and say, I've seen the hand of the Lord deliver me before. The Lord can save by many or few. I'll be your champion. In fact, it's a mystery to me why Jonathan doesn't step up. But perhaps, like most of us, Jonathan's faith at times was strong in the promises of God, and at times his faith was weak. And perhaps in that moment, when Goliath came on the scene, his faith was weak. So when David steps up and says the same type of thing, I come out to you, Goliath, in the, the name of the living God, and he defeats Goliath, Jonathan's heart said, there's a kindred heart. There's one like me who trusts in the promise of God. Look at 1 Samuel 18. This is right after David has defeated Goliath. 1 Samuel 18.1. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, listen to this language here. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Friends, in our context, there's no homosexual, no same-sex. This is not. This is manly, godly friendship of a man who he saw after his own heart, a man who trusted the God of Israel, a man who believed that God was greater than all the enemies of God's people, and his soul is knit to him because they had a kindred trust in the promise and redeemer of Israel. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 18, Saul took him, David, that day and would not let him return to his father's house. In verse 3 it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. What a description of beautiful friendship. Verse 4, look at this act that Jonathan does. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What's he doing by doing that? It's a, it's a symbolic action. That, look, I know God has called you to be the next king, and I'm submitting to that. Here's the, the son of the king's armor. This is now yours. I believe in the promise of God. I'm trusting the promise of God. And so they made a covenant together. And throughout the narrative of the rest of 1 Samuel, Jonathan will be God's hand towards David, both to deliver him physically many times, but also to deliver him spiritually, to continually point him to the promise of God. We see in Jonathan the helping hand of a Christian friend. And friend, I need to ask you a question. Do you have a friend or friends like that in your life? Married people, is your spouse that for you? 
married or single people? Do you have people of the same gender, one or two or more, that are like that? Some of you may. And if you do, you need to recognize what a precious, special gift that is from God. And you need to celebrate that. But if you don't, if the marriage relationship is not the deepest of friendships, if there's a lot of room for growth, if you feel like there's no other people of the same gender in your life that are encouraging you, that you can bear your soul to, that will remind you of the promises of God, plead with God that he would provide that for you. Make it a regular prayer that you would grow in your relationship with your spouse, that you would grow in relationship with one or two friends of the same gender. James 4 says we don't have because we don't ask. And when we see how God's grace is poured out through a Christian friendship, we need to ask, we need to plead that God would provide. And perhaps even more so, we need to pray that God would use us to be a Jonathan. One of the ways that God often provides is we take the initiative. Not just to sit back and say, Lord, would you provide me a Jonathan, but Lord, would you make me a Jonathan? Would you help me to go towards my spouse with more intentionality? Would you help me to go towards my friends and have a more spiritual friendship where we ask how we're doing, how we check on each other, how we encourage each other in the promises of God, where we're more practically there for one another? On March 3rd of this year, I'll celebrate 28 years of being a Christian and a follower of Jesus and called to ministry. And over these 28 years, one of my passions has been to disciple men. And I've poured my life into men over these last 28 years. I currently have probably 20 men that I meet with one-on-one around the world that I disciple and mentor on a regular basis. And one of the things that I've found is that as I pour into men, as I, I seek to be a good friend to men and encourage them in their walk with the Lord, you know what happens? Not intentionally but there's wonderful reciprocation. And men that I've discipled over these years have become just a horde of close friends that pray for me and check on me, encourage me, that I'm so thankful for, that I can bear my soul and say, pray for me this week, I'm struggling with lust. Pray for me this week, I've been impatient with my children. Pray for me, I'm struggling to love my wife. Pray for me, I'm discouraged this week who will sometimes come to me and confront me about the areas of my life that need to be spoken into. But it's come because of initiative, pursuing after people. And often as we seek by God's grace to take that initiative, God provides for ourselves. So friends, I encourage you to revel in the fact that the helping hand of a Christian friend is sent by God. And by God's grace, imitate Jonathan's faith. But in order to be a Jonathan to others, we really need to spend some time considering what kind of friend that Jonathan was. And I just want to highlight two things. We'll start by observing how the helping hand of a Christian friend seeks out the grieving. That's our second point. The helping hand of a Christian friend seeks out the grieving. Notice that Jonathan takes the initiative. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and strengthened his hand in God. I don't think David texted him and said, hey, bro, <laughs> I'm in trouble. I need you to show up. I don't think he sent an email, didn't send a letter. Those things weren't around. We don't see that he sent a messenger. He could have. But Jonathan, anticipating the needs of his friend, knowing that his friend's life is in peril, knowing a lot about perhaps David's struggles. David had up and down faith, just like all of us. He knew that he needed to be present with his friend. He knew that he needed to go to him. He knew that David needed some help, not just physically, 
because he probably really couldn't do much physically to help him, but he needed him help spiritually. And when we see verse 16, when it says that the result of Jonathan's ministry of friendship was that David's hand was strengthening God, it indicates that David did have some weakness. There was some sort of doubt. There was some sort of need that Jonathan fulfilled by coming and ministering to him in friendship. It reminds us that to be the means of friendship, the means of God's grace towards others, we have to take initiative. Not just sit back and wait for help, but to go forward and try to take initiative and see what people need and check on them. This last October, my wife had abdominal surgery. And there was a lady in our church, she's been a good friend for 20-something years. She's one of our elders' wives. And she's always one of our most faithful prayer warriors as we've lived and served overseas. And uh, she came to me and said, hey, Richie, when's Kelly's surgery? And I said, it's on Thursday. She said, I'm going to bring you a meal. And I said, oh, you don't have to do that. My kids cook. They'll take care of it. She goes, no, I'm going to bring you a meal. And I said, oh, really? You don't have to do that. It's fine. And so I kind of thought I'd, you know, shunned her off and thought, and I thought, it's not, my kids can cook. They'll take care of us. But then the night before the surgery, this lady called me up and said, what time can I bring the meal over? And I'm like, okay, you can bring the meal over. And so that evening after the surgery, uh, my kids had some things going on, and uh, this lady brought a, f a meal over to our house, and I was so thankful. We spent some time talking. I think we prayed together. She took the initiative to be a friend, to anticipate a need. Even when I was a little bit hesitant to take it, she kind of insisted, and I was so thankful and so encouraged this is the Lord caring for me through this woman, for me and my family. We have to take initiative in friendship just to check on them. One of the things I do for my best friend, my wife, is when I'm out during the day, in the afternoon, I just send her a text. She's a homeschooling mother of five kids. Sometimes I ask her, are you surviving school today? <laughs> and so I'm like, no, pray for me. This kid's acting up. My wife struggles with chronic pain. I'll ask her, How, how's your knee doing today? It was really hurting this morning. And just a 15-second text during the day reminds my wife that I love her, that I care for her, and it gives her a chance to respond and say, pray for me in this. I'm really frustrated. Pray for me in this. I'm really discouraged. Pray for me here. School is really, really hard. Pray for me here. I'm hurting really bad. Pray for me. We have to take initiative. When I moved to India back in 2010, I met a young Indian man about my age, and we just kind of hit it off. We had the same mindset in the gospel, and I, I appreciated his love for Christ and the church. And one morning I said, hey, let's go, to, let's go to breakfast on Tuesday and hang out. And we had such a good time talking and praying together. And I said, hey, let's do this next Tuesday. I'm like, okay. And so we did next Tuesday for five years, almost week in and week out, having breakfast together, having an Indian dosa, something like that, opening the Bible. We would just pick a book of the Bible, and we'd read a passage and talk about it. We'd share prayer requests, pray for one another. The next week, we'd pick up where we left off in that book of the Bible. And though I have a wonderful relationship with my wife, and we're best friends, that was such an encouragement to me to have that friend regularly speaking into my life, someone I could regularly confess my sins to, regularly pray for help. And it was just about taking the initiative. Hey, let's just do this. Let's do this regularly. Let's set a pattern of this once a month, once every other two weeks, once a week, something like that. Just taking intentionality. Now, notice in our text that Jonathan went to David, and there was two things going on here. First of all, it was inconvenient, and it was risky. Being a friend is always inconvenient. His care for his friend took him away from whatever duties he had. It was not a small thing to go. The armies of Israel were after him. He had to sneak around to get there and lay aside whatever other responsibilities and demands were on his time because his friend was in need. 
my wife, not too long after nursing school, she worked in a doctor's office for a couple of years in Dallas, and I remember one day she telling me about this patient who had had to wait a long time in the office. You know, we've all had those visits to the doctor's office, and, you know, it, you're supposed to have had the appointment 15 minutes ago, and then it's 30, and then it's an hour because the doctors are running behind, and this guy was getting kind of belligerent. He'd been waiting, I think, maybe an hour and a half, and he kept saying to the staff, look, Every moment that I'm here, I am not in my job making money. I am losing money every minute you make me wait. Time is money, he said. And that's a good reminder. One of the most valuable things you can offer to someone is your time. Time for a phone call. Time to give a listening ear. We confess that in our confession of sin. Just to hear someone vent their struggles. To take time to pray. Time to be with them in person, time to take a meal when they're sick, or just to check on them, to stop for a moment, make a phone call, send a text, an email, and just ask how they're doing. It, there's always some sort of inconvenience. There's also great risk. There was great risk for Jonathan. Look back at 1 Samuel 20. To go to support David because he was the chief enemy of his father actually meant Jonathan was endangering his own life. Look at one instance of this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30 to 34. They're having dinner together, Jonathan and Saul. Verse 30 says, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's not a nice way to speak to your son. I do not know, uh, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. In other words, you're foregoing the kingship. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, what is Jonathan going to do at this point? Is he just going to back up and be quiet? No, he defends his friend. Verse 32, then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? He's interceding. He's pleading for him. Look at, first, at Saul's response in this, this rush of anger. Verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Saul tried to kill his own son in a fit of rage. Some of you, maybe some of you have had a parent at some time that was really angry and hit you or smacked you around. Maybe some of you have had a father who tried to kill you, but probably not. Here in anger, his dad throws a spear at him, and probably only because of Jonathan's adeptness as a warrior was he able to avoid that. So that's in his mind. When he goes to help out David, he knows very well that if Saul catches him, Saul may have another one of those fits of anger, and it may be his very life he's risking just to go encourage his friend. I don't know that you're called to be a friend to someone you'll ever risk your life. You might. You might need to. But there's always some sort of sacrifice in genuine friendship. To be present in someone's life, to be proactive, to care for them, especially in their moments of greatest need. It'll cost you something. You'll have to risk something. But biblically, that's what friends are for. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, and one of the great Proverbs about friendship, many of you could probably quote it, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 
Oh, friends, don't you want to have and be that kind of friend to your spouse, to others in your life? But how can we do that? How can we be that kind of friend to our spouse and to others? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have no excuse not to be because the friend of sinners has sought you out. The Son of God left the convenience and joy of heaven to take on human flesh, to experience the miseries of this cursed world, and to go to the cross and to face the fierce wrath of his Father on your behalf, Christian, so that you could be brought into friendship with God, so that God's wrath, his just wrath against your wicked sin and rebellion and failure to love him with all your heart could be turned away and that the friend of sinners would satisfy that. And when you were callous to that message, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, pursued you. He went after you to woo you to himself. He took the great initiative to love you. It wasn't just that it was risky for Jesus. He knew that he would have to sacrifice it all for you. And friends, it's in the power of the friendship, love of Jesus Christ towards us as we delight in that, as we worship him for that, as we celebrate it on the Lord's Day, as we celebrate it in family worship, as we celebrate it in our public devotions, when we glory in the friendship, love of Jesus that took all the initiative and bore all the cost in the power of that love and the power of Christ, we can take the initiative to others. We can die to self and joyfully bear the burdens of our spouse and other friends. Friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the moment you need to hear as well. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the friend of sinners. And he is present right now by his spirit through the preaching of, your, of his word. And Jesus, non-Christian, is ready to be your friend a friend that will provide full salvation for you. And you may be thinking, look, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know the sin and the shame that just covers my life. There's no way God would want me. And Jesus says, I'll take you. I'll cover your shame. I'll forgive your sin. I'll bring you into the family of God, and my father will become your father. You'll be an adopted son or daughter of God. So, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please, would you hear this offer that Jesus is making to you right now? Receive him by faith alone. Trust in him by faith alone. And experience the ultimate friendship in Christ. Friends, the helping hand of a Christian friend seeks the grieving. But it's not only the gospel that motivates us to be Jonathan-like, it's the gospel that we are to use as our most important tool in our hand to help our friends. And so we'll see finally in our third point that the helping hand of a Christian friend sustains with the gospel. Look back at 1 Samuel 23. Look at verse 16 again one more time. Notice carefully the phraseology here. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horus, and pay attention to these next words, and strengthened his hand in God. He didn't strengthen him in himself. He didn't go to him and preach all of David's accolades. David, you're the giant killer. David, do you remember the songs of Israel? Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Buddy, you got this. 
bro, you got this, you're great, just believe in yourself. Didn't say that. He strengthened his hand in God. We hear so much in our world around us, in the non-believing world, about believing in ourselves. Just one example, um, I was in an Indian context, so this is kind of an Indian illustration, but it's about Gandhi. Most of you know who Mahatma Gandhi is. And there's this encouragement about Gandhi's life from this uh, television page. And it, I'm quoting from it. It says, nothing is impossible if you believe in yourself. A petite lawyer who took pride on being part of the British Empire was dismayed by the way his fellow men were being treated. He decided to take action without any resources except his mind and heart. This petite lawyer won in the end. He got exactly what he wanted, freedom. If Gandhi could do it, so can all of us. Greatness can be achieved with just believing in yourself, believing that you are capable. You must have convictions in your dreams and believe that you can make them come true. In everyday life, you have many people who will discourage you or ridicule you. It's important to remember Gandhi's example at that time and not give up or give in. Never let petty criticism create self-doubt. That's worldly encouragement. That's believing in yourself, and that's not what Jonathan did with David. He didn't point to David's inner greatness. He pointed to the promise of God, the God who by his grace and grace alone promised to be Jonathan, David's God and to call him to be king. I mean, notice how he strengthens his hand in God. We, we see it in verse 17. What does he use? Verse 17, he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of my Saul, my father, shall not find you. Well, that looks counter to everything that's going on right now, that everything you can see with the eyes. And he says, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Friends, this is not wishful thinking. This is not when you try to encourage your friend, and they're studying for an exam. You're like, oh, you've got this. You've worked hard. You'll ace it. You're just hopeful thinking. Jonathan is not doing that. He's reiterating the very promise of God because God already promised to make David king. And he's always, all he's saying is, look, our God can be trusted. He's made a promise. He has the power and the intent. He's going to make you king. David, believe the promise of God for you. And that's how he strengthened his hand in God. Pointing David away from himself to the God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, because everything that David saw with his physical eyes looked bad. Verse 15 says that David saw that Saul had come to seek out his life. And Jonathan says, David, don't trust your physical eyes. Trust the eyes of faith. The hand of God is stronger than the hand of man. And David gets it. God renews David's faith. David's faith is strengthened. In fact... I think the reason he writes Psalm 54 is because of Jonathan's encouragement. Turn over to Psalm 54. Jonathan, who had been, I mean, David, who had been struggling, was no doubt in need of strengthening. He finds the promise of God renewing through his friend. And look at Psalm 54. Look at the superscription of Psalm 54. It locates it in this passage of 1 Samuel 23. It says, To the choir master with stringed intimates, a mascal of David, notice, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Remember, we saw that in verse uh, 19 of our passage in 1 Samuel 23. So he's locating it in this time period in David's life. And look at David's prayer that he's able to write. First, we see the situation in verse 1 through 3. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Again, not looking to himself, but looking to God. 
O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. And then notice this confidence in verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Where did David get that kind of confidence in God? Through his friend Jonathan, reminding him of the very promise of God. And if you've ever found consolation from Psalm 54, you can thank Jonathan when you get to heaven because he was the instrument to strengthen David's hand in God so that David could write these words and minister to generations who would struggle to trust God like you and me. You see, friends, the reality is no matter how godly you are, no matter how engaged in ministry, you may be an officer of this church, you may be a faithful discipler, a faithful evangelist, a godly Christian who's constantly speaking the gospel out to others, reminding them of the good news of Jesus, the reality is you need to hear the gospel from the lips of others, personally, to your situation. When you're struggling with anxiety, yes, you need to be in God's word, but you also need friends who will come and quote and pray over you the promises of God to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication to make your requests known to God. When you're struggling in your sin, you need friends, a spouse, others to come and remind you Christ is your Savior. Sin is not master over you. You are united to Christ. In all the situations of life, we need to hear the promises of God from the lips of others. We are God's means of grace to help each other find our faith strong in Christ. Notice also Jonathan's pledge, verse 17 and 18 of 1 Samuel 23. He says, you shall be king over Israel, in verse 17, and I shall be next to you. Now this, if you read it out of context, you could think he's jockeying for position, but he's not. Because remember, his position was supposed to be the king. He's saying, I'm going to be your biggest supporter. I'm going to stand by you. I'm covenanting to be your friend. And in fact, verse 18 says, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. This is the third time they've made a covenant together. 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 20, and now here. What he's saying is, I'm your committed friend. I'll be there through thick and thin. No matter what happens, I'll be there for you. If you're married, you made that covenant vow when you got married. But we also need those type of friends outside of marriage. People of the same gender who will make that commitment, we will make that commitment to them as well. Friends, are you seeing that God's gift to strengthen your hand is Christian friends? And are you seeking to be that for others in the body of Christ? If you're married, are you seeking to be that first and foremost for your spouse? Are you intentional about praying with and for your spouse, with and for your friends when you gather together? Or is it always just sports talk, weather talk, hobby talk? Those things are important. A vital friendship has the mundane. That's part of the friendship and joy. But if it never goes beyond that to, hey, how are you really doing? How's your marriage relationship? How's parenting going? Are you stressed about your exams? How are things financially? Is the promise of God real to you? What sin are you struggling with that I can pray for? and checking in, and encouraging each other with the promises of God, having real conversation about real things. And friends, are you open to that? 
Are you closing yourself off because afraid of what people might see? You see, the gospel frees us to be vulnerable because we're saved by the grace of Jesus and nothing we do. And we can own up. And when people ask us those questions, we can be real. When they say, how are you doing? We don't have to say, oh, it's great. When you're feeling depressed, maybe even suicidal, you can say, I'm really struggling. I'm weak. I need help. Friends, to not pursue the type of friendships here is to our own spiritual peril. We desperately need them. And friends, not to be the type of friend that Jonathan is is a failure to live in the reality of what our friend Jesus has done for us, how he took the initiative, how he pursues us, how he's there for us through thick and thin. I think one of the best pictures of friendship that I see outside of the Bible is in the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. Um, in the books and the movies, I think Samwise Gamgee is a, a Jonathan-like figure, and I probably, I think, uh, J- uh, Tolkien was a Catholic, but he very uh, committed to the scriptures. There's a lot of biblical themes in Lord of the Rings, and I, I have a feeling that he has Jonathan and David in his mind when he has Samwise Gamgee and Frodo. You see Frodo, I mean, sorry, Samwise Gamgee from the beginning helping Frodo. When Frodo starts out on his quest to destroy the ring, Samwise is not invited, and it's a quest that's probably going to lead to death and danger, and what does Samwise do? I'm going with you. He sneaks into the council. You remember? Elrond's kind of like humorously also frustrated. Sam's like, I'm going to be there. You get to the end of the first movie. Frodo feels like he has to separate from the Fellowship of the Nine. He's, he's trying to row out in a canoe to get by himself because others can't be trusted around the ring, and Samwise comes out. And it's like, Frodo! And Frodo's kind of like trying to wave him off. What does Samwise do? He can't swim, but he goes out in deep water so that his friend will come get him. He risks his life because he knows that his friend needs someone with him. Beautiful picture at the end of the movie in the third one, Turn of the King. They're, they're near Mount Doom. Frodo's been carrying the weight of this ring. It's been destroying him in every way. And he's almost there, but he can't make it. And Sam can't carry the ring for him, and so he has these wonderful words, I can't carry it, talking about the ring, but I can carry you. And more than giving a helping hand, he picks up his friend and carries him up to Mount Doom, or begins to. But perhaps it's at the end of the second movie where the nature of their friendship is most wonderfully reflected on at the end of The Two Towers. They've just gone through all these adventures. The movie's about to wind up, that second movie. They're walking along, Frodo ahead, Samwise behind, and they're kind of having a moment of levity. And and Samwise says to Frodo, Frodo, I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And they'll say, yes, it's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy. The most famous is hobbits, and that's saying a lot. And then Frodo responds to Sam, and he says, you left out one of the chief characters, Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. Frodo wouldn't have got very far without Sam. And Samwise retorts, now, Mr. Frodo, you shouldn't make fun. I was being serious. And to that, Frodo says, so was I. So was I. Friends, God's word is telling us we won't get very far in the faith without vital Christian friends. They are his means of grace to sustain us and as we follow Christ. And by God's grace, because we've been loved by Jesus, we need to be that type of friend to others. Let's respond to God's word. And just as I did last time I was here, I want to give you a few moments of silent prayer to reflect on what you've just heard today.
before we move on to the Lord's table. Would you take just a few moments, and if you have a great friendship and marriage, a great friend of the same gender, would you take a moment and just praise God for that? Would you celebrate the gift of that friendship? And if you say, I don't have something like that, my marriage is difficult, or I'm not married, and I feel like I have no friends, would you take a moment and just pray that God would provide that type of friend for you? Just a moment of silent prayer. The next thing I want you to pray about is just thinking about how the helping hand of a Christian friend seeks out the grieving. Would you pray that God would just reveal to you for a moment who in your life, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend in this church, another Christian friend, who really you need to check on, who you need to pray with, who you need to take a meal. In some way they're hurting or you just need to check on them. Would you pray that God would reveal that to you and give you the courage and strength to do that? Just pray for a moment about that. The last thing I want you to pray about is our third point, how a Christ, the helping hand of a Christian friend sustains with the gospel. Would you pray that in your marriage, uh, in your relationships with others, that you would be more intentional about having meaningful conversation, checking on each other, speaking the gospel into each other's life, praying for one another? Would you pray that God, by his spirit, would make you more intentional in that way, just for a moment? Our good Father in heaven, you've heard the prayers of your people. Would you please answer in a mighty way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.